We are in a teaching series called After God's Own Heart. We are studying the life of David, a man after God's own heart, and, and trying to learn things from his life that we can apply to our lives, that we could be a people after God's heart, that our hearts could be in alignment with his heart, and that we would live lives obedient to his will. And so we've been diving into this, and we've looked at David the underdog. We have looked at David the friend. Last week, Andrew did a phenomenal job of presenting to us David the leader. Yes. So, obviously, it's Father's Day, so we're going to look at David the father. And I was kind of excited about this, you know, a few months ago when we put this teaching series together. Like, oh, it works out perfect. It's Father's Day. We can talk about David the father. Well, that excitement started to wane a little when I actually studied David the father and realized he was not a very good father. And now I've painted myself into a corner where I've got to preach about David the father on Father's Day, but I'm not here to beat the dads up and I'm not here to make anybody feel that bad, but we got to preach about David, a man after God's own heart who was not a very effective father. And we got to grapple with that today. And so that's what we're going to do. But here, let me just encourage you in this. There is one passage that I was able to find that showed David being a great father. And so we're going to finish with that passage, all right? We're going to finish with the uplifting and the encouraging so that uh, we can end on a strong note today. All right. If you've got your notes, which you can find in your bulletin, uh, they're attached to this podcast if you're listening to this sermon on the podcast, or they're attached to this video on our website if you're uh, watching this video from our website. Uh, you can access the sermon notes. Here's our big picture point today. David, as a father after God's own heart, learned the hard way that you have to be intentional about what you are passing down to your children. As a father after God's own heart, David learned the hard way that you have to be intentional about what you pass down to your children, right? Because what do we see in King David? He loved God with all of his heart. He was a passionate worshiper. He desired to live obedient to God's will. Uh, he had all of these character traits and all of these heart traits that God was looking for in a leader. And maybe David was just hoping that some of that would trickle down to his children, right? Maybe there'd be a little bit of osmosis that would take place, and his children would catch some of that. But because he did not intentionally nurture that in his children, and we know from studying history that kings weren't really actively involved in the lives of their children anyway, it was generally left to the wives and the concubines to care for the children. That David was not purposeful. He was not intentional. And so because of that, even though he was a man after God's own heart, what we see is all of his children straying away and falling into sin. And so that's what we want to deal with today. Now, again, this is not about making anybody feel bad. This is not about condemnation, right? We live in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation uh, for those who live according to the Spirit of God, right? This is, this is not about condemnation. So listen, if you're here today and you've got children who've made bad choices, whether those children are 50 years old or 15 years old, if you're here today and you've got children who've made bad choices, listen, this is not about heaping any sort of condemnation on you. Our children are responsible for their choices, especially when they become adults. And so this is not like everything that your kids do wrong reflects poorly on you as a man of God. No, that's not what this is about. What this is about is that we as men of God can be as intentional as we can 
to take everything that God has put into our hearts and put it into them and trust that they're going to do the best with it, right? And sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes they stray away. But where we want to take the challenge as men is to not model too many bad behaviors that our children might be attracted to. Right? We don't want to model too many bad behaviors that our children might be attracted to. You can see in your notes it says this, that uh, we can fool people in public with our hypocrisy, but we are not fooling our children at home. Right, And so David, man, he could be out there dancing around, worshiping the Lord. He could be at the temple, being actively involved in the sacrifices and, and loving God and honoring God. And, and he could be doing all of those things. But his children saw what was happening in the home. And we might hope that our kids are really attracted to the godly things within us. But what if our kids are attracted to the broken things in us? What if they're attracted to the wrong things in us, right? I mean, we look at David's life, and we can see that his kids were attracted to the sexual sin in his life because we see it manifested in his children, right? They were attracted to the bloodshed in his life because it manifested in them. They were attracted to the title and the authority and the power, and so they went after it even though David had it because it was given to him by God. His children just went after it because they were attracted to the power. Are you guys following me? Right? So, so it's important. Yes, we want to be purposeful about instilling the heart of God into our children, but I think we also have to rise to the challenge to say we don't want to give our kids too many wrong things to be attracted to, which means we've got to take a look at our lives and allow God to work in our lives and say, you know what? Uh, yes, it's important that the kids see me worshiping at church, but it's even more important that they see me worshiping at home. Yes, it's important that my kids see me loving God at church, but it's, it's also important that my kids see me making good choices and sacrificing the things that my flesh desire so that I could live for the things that God desires and that my kids would see that at home, not just at church, not just in public. Are you guys tracking with me? All right, so now King David was blessed. The Bible says he was blessed when he consolidated his power and kings started sending him extravagant gifts. He was blessed. But we've been saying this over and over again for the last several months. Being blessed is not the right measure of being okay. Being blessed is not the right measure of being okay. David was blessed, but it doesn't mean everything was okay at home. First Chronicles chapter 3 and verses 1 through 9 gives a list of, of David's sons. And this list actually appears in a few different places in the Bible, but I'm just going to focus on this one. Starting in verse 1 in First Chronicles chapter 3, it says, Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. The second was Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelitess. The third was Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth was Shephatiah, by Abital. The sixth was Ithream, by his wife Egla. Six were born to him in Hebron, and there he reigned seven years and six months. All right, so what are we reading right here? We're reading that in seven and a half years, as the king in Hebron, 
David had six sons with six different women. And that's just the sons, right? It doesn't list the daughters. In the Bible, you find two different kinds of truths, right? You find descriptive truths and you find prescriptive truths. A descriptive truth just means the Bible was describing accurately what happened. It doesn't mean the Bible was endorsing it or saying it was okay. It just means the Bible was accurately describing what happened. That's a descriptive truth. A prescriptive truth is when the Bible is teaching us what is right and what is holy and what is true. So we know what is right, what is holy, and what is true is that one man should have one wife and be one flesh with that one woman for the rest of his life. But what the Bible is describing with King David is that he was living outside of God's will in that, and he was taking what the world allowed for kings, which is you could take as many wives and concubines as you want if you're a king. Right? David's first wife was Michael, the daughter of Saul. She never bore any children. But if David was to honor who he was supposed to be as a man of God, that would have been his only wife. But instead, we see him having six sons by six different women in a matter of seven years. And that's just in Hebron, right? If we keep reading, we get to verse 5. Now it says, in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years, and these were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, or as we know, Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. And then also Ibhar, Elishama, Eliphelet, Nogad, Nepheg, and Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet, nine more. All of these were born to David. So he had 13 more sons by a variety of more women in the 30 years that he reigned in Jerusalem. So, first off, I just want you to have a picture of David's family tree so we understand as we dig deeper into this story. But what I want you to see is that what David went outside of God's will and expressed in his sexual sin of of taking what the world allowed, he passed that on to his children. And we see that sexual sin magnified and amplified in his children. And I think that's just a reality that all of us need to embrace is that any broken part of our lives that we're not willing to deal with is going to be magnified and amplified in our children. And so we want to take on the challenge to say, you know what? If it's not enough for me to say, no, I don't want to do this because it's a sin against God, maybe it would be enough to say, no, I don't want to do this because I don't want to see this brokenness magnified in the lives of my children. And we know from studying psychology that that's not the only thing you need to break an addiction. That's not the only thing you need to stop a destructive behavior, but it can sure help. It can sure help. Right? And so when I'm tempted to look at pornography, and yes, your pastor is tempted to look at pornography, right? When God made me a pastor, I didn't stop being a man. So when I'm tempted to look at pornography, One of the greatest things that helped me, in addition to I'm going to lose my ministry and my calling and everything that I've worked for, right? Paul said, I buffet my body so that I will not disqualify the calling upon my life. Is I don't want to see that brokenness in my children. And so all of my devices, the lock screen or the home screen, is pictures of my family. So that if I pick up my phone, 
before I'm tempted to look at anything wrong on my phone, first thing I'm going to see is my family. And I'm going to remember I don't want my brokenness to be magnified in my children. Thank you, Jesus. Come on. All right, so well, let's, look, look, let's look at what David did not do. Right? So what you do matters. But as fathers, sometimes what we don't do can speak volumes. What we don't do can speak volumes. And so we're going to look at a story in the Bible that actually spans seven chapters. It goes from 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way to chapter 19. And we don't have time today to read seven chapters of the Bible together, but we've been reading them one chapter at a time as we go through our rooted Bible reading. And so you will get a chance to read some of these. But I want to tell the story, and I'll stop and, and read a few verses that, that highlight some key points in the story. But this story picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where Amnon, King David's oldest son, who again, according to worldly standards, would have been the heir to the throne, Amnon rapes his half-sister. Why? Because he's overcome with lust for her, and we see the sexual sin being passed down to the next generation. Amnon rapes his half-sister. In 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 21, it says this, Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. Period. That's it. We don't hear King David was very angry and did this. King David was very angry and did that. No, all we read is King David was very angry, period, and did nothing. He did nothing about it. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now it came about after two full years, and then the Bible goes into telling the story of how Absalom murders his half-brother out of his hatred over this rape. After two full years had passed of King David doing nothing. Now... Absalom, because he has committed this murder, he has taken justice into his own hands. In 2 Samuel 13, 37, says, Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead period. But guess what? David did nothing. For three years, his son Absalom lived in exile, and David's heart longed for him, but he did nothing. Two years, he did nothing about the rape, and now three years, he does nothing about being restored to his son. Finally, his uh, servant Joab talks him into uh, bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem. And so in 2 Samuel 14, 24, it says, However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. So now David says, Okay, Absalom can come back from exile, but he still can't be with me. How long does that last? Verse 28. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Two years did nothing. Three years 
did nothing. Two years did nothing. For seven years, King David did nothing. Finally, after seven years, he brings Absalom in, and Absalom bows down, and King David kisses him, and, and, and it gives this picture of restoration. But the damage was already done because Absalom began to go and sit at the city gates and when people were coming to see the king, Absalom would intercept them and take care of matters for them so that they never got to the king. What was Absalom doing? He was planning a coup and he was winning over the hearts of the people because by this point, after seven years, he hated his father. So now you got to know that King David knows that Absalom is sitting out at the gate, usurping his authority and winning over the hearts of the people. you got to know King David knows about this, but he doesn't do anything. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 6, it says, In this manner, Absalom dealt with all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came about at the end of four years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. What Absalom was really doing is going to Hebron to launch his coup and take over the kingdom. After how many years? Four years. Four years, Absalom stood at the gate and usurped the king's authority. And for four years, King David did nothing. So what we have here, then ultimately Absalom launches his coup, takes over the kingdom. David flees rather than fighting a civil war against his son. Ultimately, a civil war breaks out anyway. Even in the midst of the civil war, David says, don't kill my son. But Joab doesn't listen to David and kills his son anyway. And now David is mourning the execution of Absalom as David gets the kingdom back. His son is dead. The kingdom was in disarray. Why? Because for 11 years, King David did nothing. He abdicated his responsibility as a father to do anything in light of a rape, in light of being restored to his son, and in light of stopping his son from trying to usurp his authority. King David did nothing. So what do you see there in your notes? King David did nothing when it came to Correcting or disciplining? You know, it seems to me that a rape would be a pretty good opportunity to correct and to discipline your son. But David did not take his responsibility to correct and to discipline. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. What does the New Testament say about this, starting in verse 5? And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. David could have taken an awful situation within his family, and he could have seen the peaceful fruit of righteousness come out of it. But instead, he chose to do nothing. Right? Men of God, we have got to be willing to correct and discipline. Right? It says discipline is not joyful. Nobody enjoys it. Not the one receiving it and not the one giving it. Listen, if the one giving the discipline is enjoying it, that is actually a sign of sickness. And that's something that we need to deal with if that's the reality. We don't enjoy giving it. We give it because we love, and out of love, we want to do what's best. Right? So listen, here's a challenge, and this is something I've had to deal with in my own life with my own children. And that is if we're disciplining out of anger, we're not producing the righteousness of God. It's when we're disciplining out of love that we produce the righteousness of God. And I have disciplined out of anger many times with my children. They can testify to it. But I've tried to work on it, and I try to discipline out of love so that I can produce the righteousness of God in their lives. But we cannot sit back and ignore the poor decisions that our children are making and think that something good is going to come out of it. David did not correct or discipline. The second thing, David did not resolve conflict. Not only did he have the opportunity to correct or to discipline Amnon, he had the opportunity to see Amnon and Absalom come together and resolve their conflict. But he chose to ignore it. Then he had years, five years in fact, to restore his relationship with his son. And he chose not to do it. And then he had four years to resolve that conflict with his son so that his son would stop trying to take authority that God had not given him, and he chose not to do it. Listen, I know that most people in their nature, like if we were just to take a poll, most people in their nature avoid conflict at all costs, right? Like that's just your nature. I'm, I'm not going to get into conflict. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to ignore it. Listen, we cannot lead. We cannot lead in the church. We cannot lead our children. We cannot lead our families if we're not willing to resolve conflict. And finally, what did David refuse to do? He refused to communicate from the heart. He longed for his son Absalom and yet didn't talk to him for five years. Everything in his heart wanted to be with him, wanted to talk to him, wanted to see him restored, wanted to have that relationship with him. And yet he never communicated from the heart. Come on, as fathers, we have got to communicate from the heart. If all we do is discipline, then that's all we're going to be seen as. But if we want to be seen as fathers, especially when our children become adults and actually have a choice to be around us or not, we've got to communicate from the heart. We've got to let our children know how we feel and what we're thinking and even what we struggle with and what happens within our hearts and within our lives. Communicate from the heart. Don't let things fester. But it's also important, keep lines of communication open. Maybe you've got a child that you're estranged from. And maybe it's been years and maybe you've tried. Listen, the only thing I can encourage you to do is keep lines of communication open. You cannot force that child to forgive you. You cannot force that child to hang out with you. You cannot force that child to talk to you. 
But you can keep lines of communication open so that when they're ready, they know that that door is open. And whatever that might look like, whether it's a text message, hey, just wanted you to know I love you, and I'd love to see you sometime. Maybe it's a Facebook or an Instagram message. Maybe it's a handwritten card. Maybe it's a phone call. Right? Maybe it's once a week. Maybe it's once a month. Just often enough to keep the lines of communication open so that when that child is ready to talk, to be restored, they know my parents love me, my parents want me, and now I'm ready. Right? So keep lines of communication open. David chose not to communicate, and he paid the price for choosing not to communicate. All right, you guys still with me? Okay, now let's talk about the one passage where David did it right. Okay, let's, let's end on a high note here. Let's encourage. First Chronicles chapter 22. What is happening at this point? King David now, after he consolidated all of his power in Jerusalem, and he led the unified kingdom, and then all the nations that he had defeated began to pay tribute, so they have plenty of resources now. The kingdom is rich, and so David builds a palace, and then he's like, well, now I'm living in a palace, but the ark of my God is still sitting in a tent. I want to build a temple for God. I want to build something beautiful for God. And he sets out to do it until God says, no, you cannot build me a temple because there's too much blood on your hands. You were a man of war. I need a man of peace to build my temple. And so your son Solomon, which Solomon means peace, right? Your son Solomon is going to become king. And he's going to be a man of peace, and he's going to build the temple for me. And so now David knows he doesn't get to build the temple, but his son is going to. So picking it up in verse 5 of 1 Chronicles 22, David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and that the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. So what do we see here? David is investing in Solomon to set him up for success. Right? This is one spot where David gets it right, and this is something that we can take as, as parents after God's own hearts. What can we do? We can invest in setting our children up for success. What did he do? Let's keep reading. In verse 6, it says, He called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. Skipping down to verse 9, this is David quoting God. God said, Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side, for his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So that was David quoting God's prophetic word. Now David begins to speak directly to his son. Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. 
Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters, and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. Hallelujah. And then it says, David turned to the leaders of Israel and says, you guys do everything you can to make sure Solomon can get this temple done. So what do we see? What did David do to invest in his son's success? Number one, he surrounded him with the right people. He said, listen, Solomon, I've got the masons and the stonecutters. I've got got the artisans. I've got the leaders. I've got everybody in place for you to build this temple. David made sure his son was surrounded with the right people. This is one thing we can do, both both as natural parents and as spiritual parents is make sure that the ones that we are leading are surrounded with the right people. This was actually wisdom that I was taught uh, by my spiritual father way before I had kids of my own. And that wisdom is this, is that uh, you cannot be everything for your kid, and you cannot be everywhere all the time for your kid. So the best thing that you can do is have other people in your life or in their life that they can turn to in times of need. Listen, I totally understand that there are some things that my children will not share with me. And that doesn't make me a bad father, and that doesn't make me insecure as a father. I just understand that that's how it works, especially being a teenager. I understand there are some things my kids won't share with me. So I want to make sure that there are some people in my kids' lives that they will share with. And that's why I praise God for Sugi and for Jake and Liz, and for some amazing people that are involved in the lives of my children, for Sarah, who's with my daughter right down there. We can make sure that we surround our children with the right people. Make sure they've got some friends who are going to build them up and speak life into them. Make sure they've got some adults and some mentors and some coaches and some guides. Surround them with the right people. The second thing David did is he encouraged his son's relationship with God. He nurtured his relationship with God is what that blank is supposed to be in your notes. He shared a prophetic word over him. God says, you're going to be his son, and he's going to be your father. God says he's going to be with you. God wants to be your father. God wants to have a relationship with you, right? The best thing we can do is nurture that relationship with God in our children. How do we do that? We model it at home more than we model it at church, right? If the only time our kids see us being spiritual is at church, then we're not modeling it at home. We've got to nurture that in their lives. And then he encouraged him. He called him to obedience to God's word. He says, listen, if you will do everything God says, if you will read the law and study the law and follow the law, he says, then you will prosper Listen, we can install the Word of God into our children's lives. We can encourage them to be obedient to God's Word. And, of course, what's the best way to do that? Model it. Let our children see us making choices. Let us, our children see us making sacrifices to do, the wrong, to do the right thing instead of the wrong thing, right? 
right? We know that some of the women that King David married was to make alliances with other kingdoms, right? Kings did that all the time. Now, what if King David's children saw him say no to another kingdom? You know what? I already have a wife. I'm not going to marry your daughter. I don't need to do that to trust God that God is going to protect us to make that kind of alliance, right? What if David's children saw him making those kinds of choices and making those kinds of stands? And then finally, he encouraged him, right? What did he say? He said, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. He encouraged him. Man, we can be encouragers to our children. I love 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 2. It's Paul describing his ministry, and he describes what his ministry looks like as mothering people, what his ministry looks like as fathering people, what his ministry looks like. And when it comes to fathering, in verse 11, he wrote this, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Exhorting and encouraging and imploring. Come on, that we can encourage, that we can lift up, that we can say, be strong, keep going, don't give up, don't be scared, right? That we can implore, listen, listen, I, I know what you want to do, but that's the wrong way. Listen, we need to go this way. This is the right thing to do. That we can speak that over our children. And we can bring that kind of life. We can surround them with the right people. We can nurture their relationship with God. We can model obedience to the Word of God. And we can be the encouragers in their life that they need. And yes, what do we see in Solomon? We see David's sin magnified in his life. But we also see Solomon building a relationship with God. And so what do we want to do? We want to extract the good out of that. Which means we stop giving our children examples of things, of wrong things for them to be attracted to. So that means that we deal with our own lives, our own destructive choices, our own addictions, our own bad habits. And then we nurture them and we encourage them to grow up into the men and women of God that we desire them to be. Thank you, Jesus. I want to do this. Sugi, can you just come up and play guitar? I'll have the whole worship team come up in just a minute. But for now, I just want Sugi to come up. And Mark and Barry, if you'll join me up here, what I would love to do right now is just pray over the men of the church. And so I'm just going to have Sugi strum the guitar just to set the atmosphere. And then I'm just going to invite the men. You don't have to come. Like I just said, we can't force anybody to do anything. But I just want to invite the men, if you want to come receive prayer, to just come up and we'll form lines in front of the three of us. And we'll just take some time to pray over you, to anoint you, to encourage you as men of God. If there's a specific issue that you need prayer for, just let us know. We would love to pray over that. And ladies in your seats, you just start praying right there where you are. You start interceding. You start praying in tongues. You just start believing for these men. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, I thank you for your word today. And God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, not to just hope that our kids catch something, uh, but that, Lord, we would be purposeful of what we're instilling within our kids. And, Lord, we would deposit your word and we would deposit relationship and truth and authenticity and vulnerability. We would deposit those things into our children. We would correct when we need to correct we would resolve conflict when we need to resolve conflict. 
we would communicate our hearts when the time is right to communicate our hearts. Let words of encouragement be upon our lips. Lord God, I pray that you would strengthen the men of the church. I pray right now for any of those that are listening to this or watching this, that they're not here today, that we can lay hands on them in person. I just pray right now a special anointing upon them, Lord. Lord, touch their hearts. Do some open heart surgery via the Holy Spirit as you work on destructive behaviors and habits in their lives. And Lord God, I pray that you would deposit a word within them that they could deposit within their children. Ah, that we would rejoice when we see our children ah, advancing the kingdom of God, ministering to their generation, doing great things for the glory of God. I pray for those right now, Lord, that have estranged relationships with their children. I pray, Father, that through open lines of communication, Lord, you would bring about restoration of relationships. As each one does their part to keep the lines open, God, I pray that you would work on the hearts of the children and of the parents, that there would be a softening, there would be a forgiveness, there would be a drawing together, even as we read that David's heart longed for Absalom. Lord, I pray for fathers' hearts right now that would long for their children, and I pray for children's hearts that would long for their fathers. And there would be a restoration of relationships. There would be a coming back together. Oh, we rejoice in that miracle, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Come on, men, just begin to come forward if you'd like to receive prayer today.